We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 113. Woo, what a year it has been. This is actually the last episode of the year, taking a little break for the holidays, but I just wanted to thank you guys so much for all of your support for such a wild year. It has been such an amazing year for the podcast. We have grown so much and had some amazing guests on here, and it is all because of you. So thank you so much for your continued support and your listening. I love you guys. All right, let's get to our amazing guest today. She is a USA Pan Am's gold and silver medalist dressage rider, and she also started a large import dressage sales program in the U.S. She has some huge aspirations. She started out as a pony clubber, and now she is going for the Olympics, and she has so much expertise in bringing up young horses through the levels. Two of her upper-level horses she has now competing, she's had since they were three or younger. So let's get the full lowdown from dressage rider Sarah Lockman. So excited that you are here. Would love to hear about how you first started riding and, and got into the equestrian world. Got it. Well, I grew up in a small cow town in northern Nevada called uh, Gardnerville. And my mom and her whole side of her family are actually from South Africa. Okay. And when my mom was younger, she said, I want to have a little girl. I'm going to name her Sarah and she's going to ride. <laughs> so uh, my mom comes from a family that had horses. My grandfather owned a, a large ranch, cattle ranch in South Africa and also trained racehorses. So my mom oh. grew up around animals. Yeah, and horses and everything. But moved uh, here to the U.S. and met my dad, who actually never even had a dog growing up. So he had a little bit of a a shock to his system. But my first horse—it's kind of the best story. I—I was maybe just three years old, and my mom and I went back to South Africa to visit family. And my dad went through what's called the penny saver, which right now is equal to our Craigslist. You know, like an online. It was you know a paper you would get and people would sell things. So my my dad went through the penny saver and found a 32-year-old one-eyed quarter horse with that came with all of her tack um for $500. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he so he bought that and he built this little barn shed thing at our at our home and was so excited and when we got back, you know, took us out and surprised us with, you know, your first pony. And my mom cried. I don't think, to be honest, they were happy tears because in my mom's eyes, you know, she imagined the perfect little white pony, you know, unicorn pony with a little English saddle and everything. And obviously in uh, Nevada and in the U.S., you know, Western is predominantly the bigger sport. Mm -hmm. So it was Western tack. So all the pictures early on of me on my first pony are in Western tack, but it's the saddle pads upside down and backwards <laughs> and all over the place. The poor pony, the bridles like halfway on, halfway off. I mean, it's yep. just a mess, but that, that was how I got in my first horse. And I think I've been hooked ever since. So, so um, cool. Yeah, so I was really lucky to to be riding basically before I could walk and started with my first trainer who I rode 
Western did uh, Western Pleasure Trail, did a halter in hand classes. And the progression was I had done some trail classes and my horse like jumped one of the little trail poles. And then I said, no, oh, I want to jump now. Mm -hmm. So that was my transition into English and I rode some English pleasure and then was introduced to Pony Club. That was probably a great, it was a great career move, but little did I know early on and got really involved in Pony Club. My family and I did, and my, my dad was the DC of the Pony Club, the, you know, the head organizer of our local pony club. And I continued in pony club and eventing then and ended up graduating to be pony clubber. But pony club introduced me to eventing. So that is, I spent the majority of my teenage years, uh, three-day eventing. And I evented through advanced, did some two stars. I was, when I was 14, I was ranked top 12 in the country for young riders. So I, I really, yeah, I really loved it. And, you know, I, I never, we never had much money, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money or anything. So we would take all of our horses. We'd buy them off the track, off the track thoroughbreds, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. And we'd get lucky with a couple of them and have pretty talented ones. And then the ones that maybe weren't as scopey or couldn't jump as high, we would end up selling and using that money to buy saddles and bridles and, and horse show stuff and, you know, all of that. So that was my beginning years. And obviously in eventing, you have to ride dressage. And most of us as kids, you know, wanted to get it over with as fast as possible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I took a, a real liking to dressage and I, I had a great first dressage trainer, Shelly Edwards, who was trained classically, did a lot of French style dressage with biomechanics, a focus in biomechanics. And I just fell in love. So even though I loved running fast and jumping high, and that adrenaline rush you get from going cross country. I always had a focus on dressage. So I would, you know, go work for my trainers or, or do whatsoever, but I would always make sure I had multiple dressage lessons a week. So I think that kind of was instilled early on in my career. Definitely. And with eventing, I mean, it seems like if you can really nail the dressage portion of the test, it kind of sets you apart a bit. So I feel like there's so much attention to detail in dressage. And while when you were competing, you said that it was one of your favorites or one of your favorite things to do when you were showing. What was it like for you as you transitioned or decided to just focus on dressage? So I actually had gotten a job opportunity. I was homeschooled all throughout my my life cool. <laughs> from I think like kindergarten, first grade, all the way through. Nice. And we did that because uh, again, finances were really tight. So in order for me to be able to afford or us to be able to afford lessons or training, I had to be able to work it off. And, you know, the school system doesn't really like, you know, you being gone for days and hours at a yeah. time. So I, at age 15, ended up moving out and I moved up to Northern California, to like the Monterey, Carmel, area. And I worked for B and Derek DeGrazia. And Derek DeGrazia at the time was the young rider coach for eventing, but his wife B was a Grand Prix dressage rider and trainer. So I got the both the best worlds and got to ride some of their really super nice horses and get a little bit of a feel for, oh, you know, this is even more fun when you have like a nice talented warm blood. Yeah. So I worked there for about a year driving my little moped around because obviously you can't drive when you're 15. <laughs> so I mean, there's some pretty classic pictures 
pictures hidden somewhere in my garage, mm-hmm. uh, me and my little moped. But then shortly after, you know, I stayed there for about a year and then I came home for a short period of time and got a job offer in Southern California out of a large dressage training and sales barn. Okay. So I, I moved there with the idea that I, I took my two eventing horses and I figured I'm just going to, you know, make my dressage even better, but I'm going to continue, you know, riding with jump, jump trainers, schooling down on the jump course at the cross country courses and just get better at dressage while continuing my eventing career. Right. So after a short period of time there riding even nicer horses, you know, imported warm bloods, you know, horses quality that I had never had a chance to even watch live before Mm -hmm. from where I grew up, I just fell in love. And, you know, one thing led to the other. And, you know, my, my thing, when I was, when I was 10 years old, I told my first trainer, I said, I'm going to be a horse trainer and I'm going to go to the Olympics. (laughs) So from a very young age, I was very focused and very goal oriented. And, and I knew somewhat how, you know, things are quite expensive and, and really being able to ride at that top level, that's not, that's not easy to do no matter how many, how much finances you do have. So all my decisions were based on, you know, how can I build a successful career and a successful business so that I can end up supporting myself and being able to do this, you know, do it how I want to do it. So after seeing the dressage world and, you know, seeing the nicer things in life and seeing the other thing with dressage is, Generally, everybody has their horse in full training. It's just how it goes. And in eventing, I mean, at least when I was doing it, I mean, we would go and take a lesson here and a lesson there, but our horses were at home and it, it just wasn't that way. So I really saw an opportunity also, you know, make a really successful business to help support myself. So that's when um, so I was 16 that I made the switch from eventing and left, you know, all my jumping stuff behind and focused primarily on dressage. How, how was that like for you at 15 and 16 doing that by yourself, like doing that move, you know, having to like work and make it happen. I mean, obviously it must've been such a big dream to you that, that it like some of it probably didn't even feel like work. It felt like this like new, exciting chapter, but tell me a little bit about like the highs and lows of that time in your life. Well, you know, it's funny because looking back, you know, maybe some people, oh, you know, you missed your childhood. You weren't a kid. You know, now I look at a lot of other 15 and 16 year olds and go, oh my God, they can hardly feed themselves. I can't imagine yeah. I was living on my own, you yeah. know, and that kind of stuff at that time. You know, I I was really raised very well. You know, my mom and dad made sure from the beginning, I'm one of four, I'm the oldest of four. And, you know, little things that they did you know, and I didn't even know they were doing it, set set me up to be super independent and confident on my own. Mm. I mean, from, you know, there was never like a kid's table. We were made to call vets and barriers and make mm-hmm. the, our own appointments. You know, they didn't hold our hands through anything. And I think, again, from such a young age, I was so motivated. My mom and dad knew, you know, that they couldn't facilitate my goals and dreams. They, they couldn't help me. And so I'm sure it was hard for them to let me go. But I I know I knew and I know they knew that that was my only chance to hit it big, you know, was to basically get out of that little town and, and go for my dreams and really work hard under someone else. And I think it's really important for young people nowadays who are, you know, interested in doing this for a living. I mean, it's, it's not glitz and glamour in the beginning. I mean, when I got that job at 16, I told my employer, I said, you know, I'm 
selling my soul to you. I will wash your car. I will mop the floors. I'll clean the bathroom with a toothbrush. And I actually really had to do all those things. Love it. <laughs> I thought I was just uh, promising my life, but it was actually legitimately what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Speaking of transitions, what was the transition like from you going from, you know, you were riding thoroughbreds and, and kind of like what you could ride and what you could um, compete on with eventing to, you know, the transition to imported warm bloods to then finding like that eye and what you specifically look for, for your own horses. You know, I am so thankful that I had the opportunity when I was younger to ride off the track thoroughbreds The yeah. you know, I was known one of the reasons I got these jobs when I was so young is I was known as the girl that would ride anything. So you need a horse jumped <laughs> up, call Sarah. She's not scared. She'll jump as high as you put the fences. You know, yeah. you have a naughty horse that bronks everybody else off, you know, Sarah will fix it. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, through the years, having the opportunity to ride difficult horses, horses that weren't necessarily talented for what they were doing, you really have to dig through your toolbox. And I was lucky to have really nice, incredible coaches early on in my life that, you know, helped me be successful with these, you know, less than perfect horses. Mm -hmm. So then when I had the opportunity to ride talented horses that were built for, made for, you know, this sport and, and wanted to do it, then I feel like it was almost more instant gratification. Like, oh, I can do this exercise and oh my goodness, it responds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, this actually is what it, in the end, this is what, you know, this is what an extended trot actually feels like on a super talented horse. Yeah. And, you know, now through all of that time and then, you know, when I worked for the big barn in, in Southern California here, I they did a lot of sales. So being able to, I mean, I would ride easily 18 to 20 horses every single day, mm-hmm. all shapes, sizes, problems, training levels and everything. And, you know, you just have to figure it out. And so I think now taking from having all of that experience, I mean, from my age and how long I've been doing this, I've ridden so many, so many hundreds and hundreds of horses. And that has really helped me now where I'm at in my career because I do a lot of import sales and, you know, being able to sit on a horse and go, okay, I know this is, this feels like this because it's this hole or, Hey, I felt this moment of talent. This horse has it in there mm-hmm. or being able to say, I know it's going to take me six months to fix whatever this training issue is, or, you know, sitting on a horse, like first apple and going, Oh my God, this is everything I've ever dreamed of. It's it, you know? Okay. So you develop your own personal feel. And I think through a little bit of trial and error that I was lucky to experience through sales horses, clients, horses, all of the above, I've been able to tailor, you know, what I like down to, you know, being more specific, you know, my, my personal type of horse now is a pretty specific course. Definitely. Yeah. What, what would be some of those specifics that you would say that you look at, that you look for now that really makes a horse work well with your style of riding? I mean, I have, again, learned through the the years that I think the temperament is so important. You know, we, we want the horses, professionals generally want very sharp, quick, very smart horses. I mean, there's a very fine line between picking a horse like that, that is so sharp, talented, and, and smart, but yet that they don't use that against you. So a horse mm. with a good temperament that has a good work ethic, that 
has to be number one. Above all the talent, the legs flying everywhere. You know, I really learned that you can have the most talented horse, horse but if the work ethic isn't as good, you, you can only do as much as they let you do, you know, at the end of the day. Right. And then I generally, well, I think most people would say right now I'm stereotyped with very beautiful chestnut horses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little my stereotype, but I, you know, I really love horses that, that use their bodies and use their backs. And that's something you can't always see on a video. You really have to sit on the horse to feel that. And and nowadays with modern style dressage horses and how athletic and talented they're breeding them, I mean, those legs might be moving, those hind legs might be amazing, but it, it only the, I feel only the very special horses really move through their bodies and use their backs and their top lines naturally and correctly. And, and that for me really sets apart what feels like, you know, a top horse that I want to sit on as opposed to just a really nice talented horse. And and that goes for any of that really, you can feel it from the time they're young all the way through their Grand Prix. It's, it's something in them. I feel like they are naturally made or they, you know, can use their backs correctly. I'm taking a quick break from the episode because here's the thing. Your riding outfits don't always have to be boring. And with the Posh Pony, you can dress up any ROOTD with a simple statement, a belt. From different colors and designs, the Posh Pony has something everyone will love. Not to mention they are a great way to add style to your everyday outfits as well. Their belts are made with durable metal hardware that is easily adjustable to most sizes. Can't find a style you like? Well, the Posh Pony can make it for you. They are all about the customer. From customer designs to requests, they are sure to have something you will love. Great as gifts for your family and friends as well. So make sure you come and support a small business that is all about making a statement in the equestrian community. Shop the Posh Pony. So head on over to their website for some inspiration and to find some adorable belts to complete your outfit. You can head over to shoptheposhpony.com. That's shop the posh, P-O-S-H, pony.com. Thank you so much, The Posh Pony. All right, let's head back to the episode. At what point were you ready to move on and do your own training program? Was there like some time that you remember in your head that you're like, okay, it's time? Or was there kind of just like a natural progression after like the previous job you had? Yeah. So I worked for that barn for seven years. Yeah. A long time. I think I was still might be the longest employee they ever had. A very super super loyal person and always have been. And I got so much experience and ride time from there. But I had a epiphany, you know, after, you know, being again exposed to all these incredible top horses, you know, being able to compete them and go to shows. I always have wanted to be one of the best international top riders and trainers, you know. And at that time I was a the get it done girl. So mm-hmm. you'd send a horse and I could ride it and I would fix it. I'd put a change on it super fast. You know, I could teach a client something very quickly. And I knew that I needed to go on my own, you know, not only to make, again, more of a living in order to make it in my career and my my business path, but also in order to, you know, explore what I wanted to be as a rider. So I didn't want to end up just staying as the get it done girl, you know, that rides at sales horses. So by going out on my own, it was in 2012, I started my own business. I was able to then, you know, take my hard earned money and maybe I made a little bit more at that time, not much, mm-hmm. and really pick and choose the coaches and the trainers I wanted 
and focus more on my riding skills and my and my riding instead of just working you know day in and day out so it needed to be more than just working and getting it done it needed to be you know how good can i be mm-hmm. when you were working for the other barn for that um, period of time were you also teaching and helping with that aspect of the business Yes, okay. it was one of the largest barns in Southern California. It was over 50 horses. They had a huge sales program and clients went to shows, cool. you know, Young Horses Through Grand Prix. They had a lot of different businesses that had to do with the same business, a very smart businessman. So I learned a lot of marketing, branding, and and business kind of savvy from, from being there for so many years. So I also had a lot of experience, that, especially through that time with client relations and, you know, managing top horses and and a barn and a busy barn to be, to say that. So, so I started my business in 2012 and, and shortly after, I think it was two years in, I was up to 30 horses in training and three years in up until I, uh, partnered with Summit Farm, I had 50 horses plus in training consistently. And I was myself, Sarah Lachman Dressage was the largest dressage training and sales department on the West Coast. Wow. And yeah, at what point did you decide that you were like, okay, it's time. I need to kind of... (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think there were plenty of those times, whether it was a possibility or an option to change that, you know, I, I, that was, this is where the fairy tale story starts. So I was Mm. so lucky to have so many supportive clients. I mean, they had, the clients I had were very ambitious amateurs that competed through Grand Prix themselves. I had Mm. clients winning national titles. I mean, it was super, they had very talented young horses as well. And, and I do have a a passion for teaching and coaching, but of course, you know, you watch any of the top international riders, nobody there is running a 50 horse training barn. You know, there's, you just can't do both. So I, I'm really proud to say that I was able to build such a big and successful business. I can say I can check that off. And I was known for, I would, I would take any shapes and sizes. So I had Pintos, Arabians, quarter horses, you know, this is where I was digging back from all my years of riding, whatever. And, you know, I was so passionate about just making each horse their best and teaching each client how to also be the best with their horse. So this is where, again, the fairy tale starts. The barn owner at the time gave me a call and said, hey, I just got a funny call from a a gentleman that doesn't sound that educated in the horses, but says he has a Frisian he wants to stable here. But I I said he kind of needs a trainer by the sounds of it. So can I have him give you a call? And again, I'm super busy. So I said, okay, sure. Have him give me a call. So this is Jerry Ibanez. He ends up calling me and saying, you know, I, I'm about to buy, purchase this Frisian that I saw off the internet. I've always wanted to do dressage. I've always loved Frisians, but I, you know, I've only done cutting horses and that was 20 years ago. Wow. I'm like, oh my goodness, wait, wait, wait. And Frisians are great. Don't get me wrong, but not all of them are best for beginners. You know, mm-hmm. they're bouncy and they're big and strong. And, and so I said, okay, hold on, hold on. Why don't you send me the video? I can go try the horse with you. You know, let's take it slowly. You know, there's a process to this. So he said, okay, I'll send you the video and I'll call you tomorrow. So he sends me the video and it's a nice horse, but you know, you can't tell much by the video. Yeah. So he calls me the next day and he says, well, I lied to you. 
I've already bought the horse. Of course. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, okay, well, that's okay. fine. We can deal with this. You know, he didn't know about vetting the horse, didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So I had him ship the horse to my stable. And I have to tell you, it's ended up being one of the best Frisians I've ever personally seen. Oh. Two years ago, he scored 73% in an I1. Wow. So yeah, super talented Frisian. He actually had a good eye for horses, even with the little knowledge he had. Wow. But Jerry, when he came into my barn, said, you know, I want to learn everything from the beginning. So, you know, my grooms and my girls actually spent the most time with Jerry and taught him how to pick out the horse's feet. And he would spend hours cleaning the stall and grooming mm-hmm. the horse and walking him around. And I would I was riding and trying to make the horse a little easier for him. So he'd watch me ride. And, and one afternoon, you know, I was in the cross ties late with him and he said, you know, why, why are you doing this? And I was like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> you know? And he goes, well, I, I, and he's a very normal looking guy, you know, to paint a picture where, where, uh, the same faded t-shirt and, and normal, like holy Levi jeans. I mean, definitely you wouldn't guess this man was what he was. Uh-huh. Um, but he said, you know, I have, created and ran, you know, multi-million dollar companies. And I have never met someone that works as hard as you. Hmm. So why are you doing this? And uh, I said, you know, I have this crazy dream. You know, I really want one day want to represent the United States. Like I, I want to go to the Olympics and you know, this is the only way I know how is work hard and build a business and, you know, basically, you know, save my pennies. So he said, okay, well, you know, let me know if you if you ever need help or you ever need anything. And a lot of my clients would say that. So of yeah. course, you know, oh, they were super supportive. Thank you so much. So fast forward to a few months later, I took a trip to Europe, which I did often to find investment horses. And I found a super Grand Prix horse, not cheap at all, but I figured, I was like, you know what, Sarah, this is the time. And I had figured, all right, I'm going to syndicate this horse. I'm going to call every single one of my lovely clients that were so supportive. And I'm going to try syndicate them and make this happen. So just for some odd reason, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to call Jerry first. So mm-hmm. I call Jerry and I'm you know nervous and I try have my speech all together yep. and started telling him about the horse and, you know, what I wanted to do. And then, you know, then I said, you know, but this is the price of the horse. That's why I'm calling because I want to syndicate and I wanted to see if you were interested. And all he said was, okay. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. What does okay mean? (laughs) And so I said, okay. And he said, yeah, but, but I can just do this. He said, I can just do this. We, we don't need anyone else. And I mean, the phone almost dropped out of my hand, you know, I was like, oh, this can't be real. So again, you know, long story short, that horse actually didn't end up working out, but that started our conversations together. And, and Jerry, ended up being my sponsor and we found a beautiful 22 acre facility here in Marietta, California, Southern California. And he said, I'm going to sponsor you. Let's do this. So that's how my fairy tale for the last three years now had started. Amazing. That is so, so cool. As you were growing and once you had kind of put put this team together and had the new facility where do you feel like that changed as far as what you're setting your sights on you know making your goals a reality were you showing at different places where where was like the trajectory of your process so the idea between and it was not an easy transition that was also besides leaving 
the job I had for seven years and starting my own business, this was the second hardest decision. And most people be like, are you crazy? Like I would leave anything for that. But you know, I had, I loved my barn of 50 clients. I know Mm -hmm. that's crazy, but those ladies were great. And we were all big family. So it was a really big career move for me to, you know, move on from that. But the thing is, just like I had said, when I started my own business, it was also another growth period. Mm. In order to go from, you know, what I had there and to, again, try be at the top tier with these top riders, I had to be even more focused. So you can't be riding that many horses a day. You know, it has to be focused training, you know, quiet, you know, one-on-one time with my horses, more time with my coaches. I mean, simple things like working out more and paying more attention to my body, all those Mm -hmm. things that you can't do when you're running around crazy with that big of a training stable. So, so that was the idea of, of moving to something small and private and, and basically leaving clients behind. So I was still competing. Jerry and I found a couple really super young horses. I've always been really passionate about bringing along young horses and, and developing them. I really think that's the true way to having a super top horse. So, and he believed in me you know, and said, okay, you, you know, let's, let's do this. And so I said the best thing, what all the top European riders have, as well as the pipeline of horses. So it's not good enough just to go out and buy one Grand Prix horse already made and, and think you're going to be able to be around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So our map that we had laid out for this and for my career and for, for us here at Summit Farm was to have a pipeline of horses that could help represent the U.S., from, you know, now or when we started for many, many years to come. So I was still competing a lot, showing my young horses. I had coaches coming in, some of the top U.S. coaches coming in and and working with me one-on-one every couple weeks, which was more training than I had gotten even when I had my own business. So it was a, a very profound transition to go from now being, I was a big business owner to being an athlete. And, and that's really what I've been able to focus on this last three years is, is being a top athlete and rider for my select group of horses. Amazing. So cool. What was Jerry's involvement as far as like the day-to-day stuff for you to continue with your, you know, your goals and, and what you were doing and how he was involved? Jerry was, I would have to say, the the perfect owner cool. and the perfect sponsor because his first question he would ask me when he'd come down to the barn or he'd show up at a horse show would be, how are you? How are you feeling? Are the horses happy? Mm-hmm. And that literally were, that was his first concern is the health and happiness and the well-being of the horses. And the same with me above competition results above performance results, you know, that to him, you know, obviously we were competitive and both of us were competitive. That's why he wanted to go down this path, but he loved the horses just as animals more than anything. So, you know, Jerry would go on a trail ride here, there with me, you know, he'd come down to the barn and watch, but he definitely, I have to say, I never thought that I was going to end up with that kind of a perfect owner because he trusted me 110%. Mm -hmm. So if I said, you know, I'm going to do this, with the horse, you know, he'd ask questions and he definitely want to know, but he always said, you know, you have the final say, you know what you're doing. And if you need help or, 
backup or you need to bring in other professionals, you tell me, we'll make it happen. But he never, ever questioned me. And that made, you know, our business working relationship amazing. And he also ran and created multiple top, top businesses. So, so his thought process, dealing with people, dealing with business, I learned so much from him as the mentor as well. So it was a really great combination. Amazing. When you are now looking ahead and obviously this year has made things a little dicey, what are you looking to do or what kind of action steps are you putting in place to get to that next goal of representing the U.S. in the Olympic Games? So it's it's hard as always in regular life and when (laughs) things are normal, there's a lot of distractions and there's a lot of things that go on in life that actually have nothing to do with the horses that can affect your performance. And this goes for anybody at any sport and any level. But yeah, now with our crazy world, it's definitely making me exercise my tunnel vision. And even though things got postponed for Apple and I, that was actually a blessing in disguise because Apple was uh, last year was his first year out Grand Prix. It was a little bit green. Mm-hmm. And so for us, the time was so needed for another year. So we've spent this last summer, six, eight months, focusing on the details. So, you know, being more, even more in tune with the horse, you know, focusing on the basics, throughness, bending, all the things that, you know, we say over and over again. Working on that stuff has made all of our Grand Prix movements, you know, even better quality. And, you know, Apple and I are still a pretty new combination. It's just been two years that we've had him. So it's been great to even have a little bit more time just to get to know the horse, especially at this new level. Definitely. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are really passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community just doesn't either know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? You know, one of the things I've always been a big promoter of, and it's still a life goal of mine, is, you know, us equestrians, we're athletes and business people. Mm -hmm. And there's a majority of us are women. So we're women athletes and women business owners doing both of those things at the same time in one of the few sports. Well, I don't know if I can say this like perfectly quoted, but there aren't many sports where you can both male and female compete together Mm -hmm. on an equal playing field. Right. So I, one of my personal goals is as time goes on is to get recognized by companies like Gatorade and like Nike, mm-hmm. you know, and have us be recognized more as athletes. So my thing with the rest of the equestrian community is, you know, I think if we all felt like that about ourselves and took our training and our health and our fitness seriously, you know, like any other athlete would, I think it would help our whole industry, you know, the lack of sponsorships and the lack of endorsements that we have compared to other Olympic sports. It's it's pretty sad yeah. considering what we do is so different. Difficult. Mm-hmm. And again, we do the only Olympic sport where you have to deal with a partner that doesn't speak your language. Oh, wait, doesn't speak at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what we do is quite incredible. And my life goal is to end up helping the equestrian industry be recognized more for that and to help grow our sport in that way 
as again and get it more recognized in, as an Olympic sport. So when you say dressage, someone doesn't go what, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when you say it's an Olympic sport, they go oh, you know, probably like what table tennis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's the same thing. So that is one of my career goals uh, that hopefully I can help our industry be more recognized. I love that. I feel like that is such a good point. And it's something that it really should be, I mean, a no-brainer considering that, I mean, it's for a lot of people, it's quite an uphill battle to become a successful horse professional. I mean, it just is so hard, you know, all the work and the hours you have to put in while you're still trying to maybe have a family, have any other type of life interests or hobbies. And, and then on top of that, just the financial aspect is so daunting sometimes that you, I feel like equestrians have to be so resilient, so creative. And like what you were saying before, have that tunnel vision in order to get a taste of success. So I think that you are really onto something with trying to find ways to, for the sport to be more recognized and and have those endorsements so that people have a little bit of uh, weight off of their shoulders and can really focus on performing. Exactly. Love that. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was so fun having you and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.